Well, let's get started. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, another day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship with the body of Christ. And just pray that you would continue to grow uh, our knowledge of you, our relationship with you, our ability to please and glorify you in all that we do. And just pray that you would apply uh, teaching this morning and the sermon and the main service to our hearts to transform us into Christ's likeness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, remember, uh, last week I said we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit today, and we are, but um, as I was preparing uh, the lesson, I realized that it's really necessary for us to look at the doctrine of the Trinity first, and um, that's a big topic, so is the Holy Spirit, and I just want to remind you that these classes, this class in particular, is really just brief introduction on all of these different doctrines because there are literally massive volumes written about the Holy Spirit, massive volumes written on the Trinity, massive volumes written on the doctrine of God. So what you're getting here is just an introduction and I'm not going to touch on all aspects of the Trinity or all aspects of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to touch on all aspects of any of the doctrines that, that we cover in here. So it is just an introduction. So beginning with the Trinity, uh, last week we finished up with a study of God's attributes, those uh, that are unique to God alone, those are the incommunicable attributes, and those attributes that we share, at least to some degree, or that are communicated to us by God, those are his communicable attributes. Now, the problem is when we study the attributes of God, sovereignty, omniscience, the fact that he's um, all-knowing, his omnipotence, the fact that he possesses all power, his infinity, unity, holiness, whatever, um, we tend to associate all of those attributes with, with God the Father. And that is true, but in one way that falls short, it's mistaken to a degree because the doctrine of the Trinity shows us that all of God's attributes are shared equally amongst the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share all of the attributes because each member of the Trinity is fully God. Yet at the same time that each member of the Trinity is fully God, there is only one God. So, brief definition of the Trinity would be God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And the actual word for Trinity is not in the Bible, which you probably already knew that, uh, but it's used to summarize the doctrine, and it means, literally means tri-unity or three-in-oneness. Now, I want to give you another explanation, a little bit more detailed explanation of the Trinity uh, from MacArthur's theology text. This is his definition. Each person of the Trinity, also known as the Godhead, possesses the entire undivided essence or nature of God. This fact means that the three persons, though distinct from one another, are co-equal in their possession of every perfection or attribute of the divine essence or nature of God. They are essentially co-equal. That is, with respect to the essence or nature of God, the three persons are equal to 
each other. Okay? So you got all that now. Right? So three distinct persons while at the same time one God. And that illustration that's on the study guide hopefully helps to clarify the concept a little bit. Uh, this is one of the most difficult doctrines in Scripture to really wrap our finite brains around. But as the illustration you know, shows you, Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not the Father or the Son. But they're all God. So that's the Trinity. Now, I'm going to look at some of the passages in Scripture that begin to reveal this to us. Um, you see the Trinity uh, from the very beginning uh, of Scripture, beginning in Genesis. Uh, the, the teaching in the Old Testament is not as explicit as it is in the New Testament, but there are many Old Testament passages that begin to reveal this plurality of the one God, and it literally begins in the beginning. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And some theologians have suggested that the plural use of let us and our could uh, simply be a plural form of majesty, uh, you know, like what a king would use in granting a request, um, referring to himself. We are pleased to grant your request. Or, I know that a number of jokes have been made about Queen Victoria, we are not pleased, okay? But in Old Testament Hebrew and in Hebrew literature, uh, nowhere does any king or queen, any um, sovereign ever refer to themselves in that way. Uh, some others have suggested that this is a reference to angels, but angels were not involved in creation, and man was not made in the image of angels. They're a very separate and distinct created being. So that option is also ruled out. Uh, the best understanding is that um, this passage does in fact refer to the plurality of God, the fact that there is more than one person in the Godhead. And then that is uh, progressively revealed in Scripture and fully revealed in the New Testament. And a couple more passages where this plurality is referred to in Genesis is Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. In Genesis 11.7, at the Tower of Babel, come let us go down and there confuse their language. Um, so we see this plurality in Genesis repeatedly, but uh, the plural reference is also found Elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 6, 8, there is an example. The passage says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So in this text, you see God referring to himself all in the singular first, but then in the plural form. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? You also find passages in the Old Testament where one person is referred to as God or Lord and then distinguished from someone else who is also referred to as God or Lord. See that in Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. 
you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So two different persons are referred to <clears throat> as God. And Hebrews 1.8 takes that passage and applies it to Christ. And says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And uh, that passage in Hebrews is also a, a proof text for the deity of Christ. Also in Psalm 110.1, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David refers to two separate persons as Lord, and David's Lord is God, and only someone who is also God could say to God, sit at my right hand. Now, a little complicated, but you do see that reference to God twice and uh, distinguishing two separate uh, individuals. So da David, at least, certainly has an understanding of the plurality of the one God. Then a few more Old Testament passages that point out uh, this plurality. Isaiah 63.10 says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Well, God's people grieved his Holy Spirit. That also suggests that God and the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, are separate and distinct. And something else that's uh, shown here, the fact that the Holy Spirit can be grieved seems to indicate an emotional response or the capability of an emotional response, uh, which is characteristic of an actual person, which would dispel the idea that the Holy Spirit is just some nebulous force, which I believe is the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses position, a false position. <clears throat> so just a couple more Old Testament passages, Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek, and this is God speaking, okay? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant to whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so the rest of the passage develops that a little bit more, but here the Lord, which is equivalent to God, is speaking, and he distinguishes himself from the Lord whom you seek which implies two separate persons called Lord, and Lord, particularly in this context, is a reference to God, is a title for God. Then in Hosea 1.7, the Lord God says about Judah, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. So again, more than one person referred to as Lord, as God. Okay? So that's Old Testament, and again, just a brief uh, survey of some of the passages that reveal this plurality of the one God. <clears throat> then, in the New Testament, there is a much more fully developed revelation of the Trinity. In many passages, all three members are named or are shown together. Um, the first one that we see is Jesus' baptism in Matthew uh, 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Three distinct members of the Trinity, performing three distinct 
actions. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son is baptized. God the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and rests on Jesus. That passage in particular gives uh, modalists, uh, people who are from the oneness Pentecostal in particular, um, uh, sect of what they call Christianity, Uh, They have a problem with that, where they believe that God manifests himself uh, as the Father at different times, the Father at different times, the Spirit at different times, never is God all three or even two at the same time. So that passage clearly dispels the idea of modalism, that God takes different forms at different times for different purposes. Then in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity named and named with equal status. Uh, Then uh, a couple of other New Testament passages that refer to um, the three distinct persons of the Trinity explicitly. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the knowledge, foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And then Jude 20, 21, but you behold, I'm sorry, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So all of those passages, and, and there are many more that mention the three members of the Trinity together. And it gives them, like I said before, it gives them equal status and importance, <clears throat> but makes a distinct, the distinction between the three. <clears throat> now, New Testament scriptures, aside from those references, the New Testament scriptures also refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as God, specifically as God. The Father is God, John 6, 27. On him, God the Father has set his seal. In Romans 15, 6, that together you may with one voice glorify uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the Father is referred to as God. Jesus, the Son, is also referred to as God. In fact, Jesus himself claims deity. He claims to be God or in possession of divine authority, which is only the privilege of God. He says that he is the Son of God, Mark 14, uh, 61 through 62. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Blessed referring to God. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. So he claims to be God also in identifying himself with the same title that God used in speaking to Moses, I am, which in the Greek is ego eme, and that's also Yahweh in the Old Testament, 
John 8, 58 through 59, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, the reason they wanted to stone him was because they understood exactly what he was saying. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they knew that he was calling himself Jehovah, Yahweh, okay? So they wanted to kill him because that's blasphemy. Um, then in the New Testament, um, the writers, the apostles, also refer to Jesus as God or as divine. Matthew 1.23, <clears throat> Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke quotes Peter referring to Jesus as Lord in fulfillment of Psalm 110.1 in Acts 2.24-36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We saw that passage before. Um, Thomas also confesses Jesus is God after the resurrection in John 20, 27 to 29. Then he said to Thomas, Jesus speaking to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Jesus answered him, Jesus, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, and worshiped him. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Then in Colossians 2.9, Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus was God in the flesh. Philippians 2.6-7, Paul says Jesus existed in the form of God. And then, of course, John 1, 1, that you're all familiar with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is Jesus, and that's very clear as you go on uh, in the context of the first chapter of John. <clears throat> and then Titus 2, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And 2 Peter 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, stated again. And the rules of Greek grammar dictate that God and Savior have to refer to the person that's being described, which in this case is Jesus. So, New Testament makes it pretty clear. Um, the Father is referred to as God, Son is referred to as God, and the Holy Spirit is also referred to as God. First of all, his titles associate him with the other members of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the spirit of your father, my spirit, the spirit of Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit, God. Okay? In this context, Lord is God. The Lord here is synonymous with God. And then in Acts 5, 3 through 4, there is a very clear assertion that the Holy Spirit is God. <clears throat> you should be familiar with that. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So lying to the Holy Spirit was lying to God. And in a number of other passages, the Lord or God is referred to as the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, uh, which read earlier. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, not only are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit referred to as God, but they each have rights uh, and privileges, prerogatives, that are reserved only for God, and in particular, the right to receive worship. Only God has the right to receive worship. And the Father receives worship, John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Uh, the Son receives worship, Matthew 14, And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit receives worship. And this is certainly implied, it's not as explicit, but Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the passage, like others, um, doesn't, um, doesn't speak explicitly, but the idea of grieving, quenching, or um, outraging the Holy Spirit, which is some other passages in the New Testament, they don't explicitly command worship, but by a negative contrast, they command people to live lives that honor and obey and essentially worship the Holy Spirit. We worship God by honoring him, by obeying him. <clears throat> so the opposite of that is to fail to worship the Holy Spirit. And all three members of the Trinity uh, also perform divine acts or acts that only God can perform. First of all, the Father creates, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, or you can go all the way back to Genesis, the first chapter, but 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. The Father also sustains life, Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. <clears throat> they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The Father also raises the dead, Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. The Father also reveals truth, <clears throat> Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus also creates Jesus in John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. <clears throat> Jesus also sustains all things, Colossians 1, 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus raises the dead, Lazarus for one example, but John 5, 28 through 29 says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, Jesus' voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
<clears throat> Jesus also reveals truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And then finally, the Holy Spirit also creates. He was certainly involved in creation. Um, Genesis 1, 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit raises the dead, Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which is the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. <clears throat> so the Spirit raises the dead, gives life. The Spirit also reveals truth, and we see that uh, if you read your Bible, you uh, see the Spirit's revelation of truth because he inspired all the writers of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the three members of the Trinity <clears throat> referred to together, which indicates equal status, each member is identified as God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each have rights and privileges reserved only for God, and they each perform acts that only God can perform. Yet, uh, even though each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each possess everything, possess all that makes God God, uh, once again, there is only one God. And Scripture is very clear about that. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5-6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Mark 12.29 uh, Jesus answering the Pharisees, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that, you, uh, that they know you, the only true God. In James 2, 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there is one God, only one God. Yet, there are three members of the Trinity, or Godhead, three persons who are God, but there's one God. <clears throat> so, I'm going to wrap uh, this up, uh, this introduction to the Trinity with a definition that I started with at the very beginning, simple uh, definition. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. <clears throat> that gives the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Modalists and you know all the different cults and sects out there fits. But that is what Scripture reveals. Okay? Now, um, said we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit today, and we have already been doing that <clears throat> through this introduction to the doctrine of the Trinity. We've established that the Holy Spirit is a dis distinct person within the Trinity. He is God. He possesses all the rights and privileges of God, and he performs acts that only God can perform. So, <clears throat> having said that about the person of the Holy Spirit, I want to look a little bit more in depth at what the Holy Spirit's role 
is or what the work of the Holy Spirit is. And uh, there's, there's way more than what I'm going to give you this morning or what's in your study guide. Um, but this at least summarizes some of the main areas of the Spirit's work. First of all, the Holy Spirit purifies. Uh, the Holy Spirit unifies. The Holy Spirit reveals. And the Holy Spirit empowers. <clears throat> now, one of the main uh, or primary roles or works of the Holy Spirit is to cleanse or purify believers from sin. That facilitates our sanctification, makes us more Christ-like. It completes the work of making us experientially holy and preparing us to be in the presence of God. Um, he even serves, the Holy Spirit even serves to restrain sin in unbelievers and in believers alike, keeps them from sinning, keeps them, uh, keeps sin from being expressed as wickedly as it could be. But when someone comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit initially cleanses one from sin, makes a decisive break with the old sinful man, the old sinful nature, and the old sin patterns that enslaved uh, the person who has come to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then <clears throat> after that decisive break and cleansing from sin, the Holy Spirit um, continues that cleansing work by growing us in moral purity, growing us in obedience to God, growing us in actual uh, lived-out holiness. He produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, which reflects Christ-like character or godliness, reflects holiness. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the Spirit is transforming us into, um, into Christ-likeness, into the likeness of Christ, making us more like Him over the course of our lives, and that continues throughout the course of our lives, continues until Christ comes back or he takes us home. We never reach sinless perfection in this life, contrary to what Wesleyan Methodists believe. They believe that you actually can become absolutely without sin in this life. When we were working in Nairobi, we had an interim director who was a Wesleyan Methodist, and she told me that I didn't sin anymore, and neither did she. I go, well, you obviously don't know me very well, so... We had some heated arguments about that, but yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> that will finally occur when we are in glory. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, uh, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So our sanctification, uh, growth in Christ-likeness is, a, again, a primary work of the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians 2.13 also says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. <clears throat> and as we grow in Christ-likeness, uh, as we grow in actual holiness, because of that Holy Spirit work in us, increasingly we are able to kill sin in our lives. Increasingly we are able to live in obedience, although imperfectly. 
Um, and again, that's all because of the Holy Spirit's work in uh, sanctifying us and empowering us, which we'll get to a little bit later. Romans 7, 6 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. <clears throat> now, so the next category uh, of the Holy Spirit's work is that the Holy Spirit unifies. He produces unity, particularly among believers. He produces unity within the church. At Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers, not just specific individuals as we saw in the Old Testament and as you see in the Old Testament. And that was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Joel 2, 28 to 32. And the Holy Spirit created this new community of believers, which is the church. And the early church, in particular, was characterized by a tremendous unity. Some of the early churches were also characterized by tremendous uh, divisiveness and sin, but initially, certainly characterized by unity. Acts 2, 44 through 47, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day to day those who were being saved. And, and really all healthy, biblical, God-honoring churches throughout church history right up until today, uh, continue to reflect that unity, although imperfectly. <clears throat> Paul prays for that unity amongst the Corinthian church, which was a church that was, you know, dealing with a lot of sin within the body. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That fellowship unity is because of the Holy Spirit's work. Paul also refers to the unifying work of the uh, Holy Spirit in Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, <clears throat> because that is in the Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 18, Paul speaks of the unity between the Jew and Gentile believers, for uh, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And he talks about breaking down the dividing wall. And he encourages the Ephesians to pursue the unity of the spirit. In Ephesians 4, 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the Holy Spirit also gives spiritual gifts for the purpose of um, increasing unity within the body of Christ. He gives gifts to every believer and uh, um, the reason that creates unity is because it forces us to depend on one another <clears throat> because nobody within the body of Christ is given all of the gifts that are necessary for growth and service. So we're unified because we depend on, we need each other, we help each other, encourage each other uh, with those gifts that are given. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, now there are... Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, 
but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And in verses 17 through 20, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, the Spirit also brings unity by empowering believers to kill sin, because it is sin that divides us, Um, those things that create division and strife. By producing character, uh, godly character, Christ-likeness, and obedience, that contributes to unity within the body of Christ. <clears throat> That's Galatians uh, 5, 18 through 25. And I won't read that, but it's in your notes. Um, the Spirit produces love in the hearts of believers, Romans 5, 5. And uh, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And, and that love produces unity in the church. Colossians 3.14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And again, that love is poured out through the Holy Spirit. So that unity characterizes, as I said before, all biblical, gospel-focused, God-honoring churches, and uh, yet that unity is uh, often marred by our own uh, sinful responses, so that unity is imperfect. But the unity that you see in the body of Christ is nothing uh, like what you might see out in the world because there is no unity in the world. Here it is uh, a reality because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit also reveals or is responsible for um, the revelation of God and God's will uh, to believers and to the world. This is seen in the work of inspiration of the prophets and the apostles, the human authors of Scripture, which we dealt with at the very beginning of the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, Ezekiel 11.5, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say thus, says the Lord. And then 2 Peter 1.21, we've already read that. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In John 16.13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Spirit also guides and directs uh, people, particularly believers, according to God's will or into God's will. He led Jesus into the wilderness, Matthew 4.1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, and uh, he also gave direct guidance to people, Acts 8.29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot, Acts 13.2, while they were Worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I've called them. Now, usually the Spirit's guidance is not so dramatic or audible, uh, but rather he guides through uh, day-to-day providential directing and also growth and obedience to the revealed uh, moral will of God. And obedience to that moral will is, I don't want to say it's more important, but that is certainly uh, God's uh, primary concern, our growth and holiness, obedience, rather than uh, the job that we have or uh, where we live or what kind of car we buy. Not that, not that he's not concerned with that, but that's not primary concern. 
<clears throat> then uh, Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walking by the Spirit is essentially walking in obedience to all that Christ, to all that God has revealed in his word. Um, guidance may also take the form of a spirit-imparted desire uh, or, as I said earlier, providential directing. Paul refers to this uh, regarding his journey to Jerusalem in Acts 20, 22 to 23. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, uh, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Spirit also places people in ministry for his purposes, for God's purposes, Acts 20, 28. Uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Uh, the Spirit also reveals uh, through conviction of sin, Acts 16, 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He also reveals uh, assurance of salvation to believers, Romans 8, 16, Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit reveals truth, 16, 13, John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So all of these fall under the category of the Holy Spirit's role of revealing and there's some more that I've listed on the study guide, at the bottom of the study guide. Now, the last role uh, or work of the Holy Spirit is to empower. <clears throat> and that is seen uh, fairly dramatically in the Old Testament in a number of um, situations. Uh, but first, the Holy Spirit empowers by giving life. 104, Psalm 104.30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. He gives spiritual life um, to those who come to faith in Christ, John 3, 6 through 7, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. In John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. <clears throat> the Spirit also empowers people for service. I said you see dramatic examples of that in the Old Testament. Uh, the Spirit empowered the judges. And just one of the example, uh, one example of those judges is Gideon, Judges 6:34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Beazites were called out to follow him. And with Saul and David, 1 Samuel 11:6, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 1 Samuel 16:13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, David. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. <clears throat> Spirit also empowered the Messiah, Jesus, in Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus entered into temptation in the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Luke 4.1. And then he returned to ministry in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4.14. The Holy Spirit empowered the disciples, as he does all believers, for ministry. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit <clears throat> has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He empowers for the bold preaching of the word, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And as I mentioned earlier, the Spirit empowers for service by giving spiritual gifts or service uh, for service to the church, and that also contributes to unity, as we mentioned before. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, all these, the gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Spirit empowers our prayers, making them uh, more effective by interceding for us. Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the Spirit empowers believers for spiritual warfare with the Word of God. Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, that's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit is a distinct person, member of the Trinity, the Godhead. He possesses the essence or nature of God and all the attributes, rights, privileges, and authority of God. He is not the Son or the Father, but He is God. His role or work as a member of the Trinity consists of purifying or sanctifying believers, unifying the church, revealing God Himself, sin, truth, and guiding or leading believers in the will of God and empowering both individuals and the church for his purposes and for ministry. Any questions? Yes, sir. Yes. But at the same time, in, in every act that takes place, every act of God, all three members are involved. Creation, all three members are involved. Salvation, all three members are involved. Providential directing, all three members are involved. Uh, but different roles, yeah. 